0: At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Well, friends, this morning we're going to be continuing the sermon series that we began a few weeks ago out of Matthew chapters 24 and 25 called Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Preparing for the sun to rise again. And this series is looking at a message that Jesus preached to his disciples while standing on the Mount of Olives. You might have heard it referred to as the Olivet Discourse, a discourse or sermon preached from the Mount of Olives. That's what the context is. And Jesus gave this message just a few days before he went to the cross to offer his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And in this message, Jesus focused on the reality of his second coming, the reality that one day he would come back and he would establish a kingdom that would go on forever and ever. And in light of that knowledge, how should you and I respond to that message? Well, we have been seeing all month long uh, what Jesus said in those verses. And today we're going to continue that series by looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13, in a section where Jesus really challenges us in light of the knowledge of his second coming, that we would be prepared. Now, when I say be prepared, what comes to your mind? Well, for some of you, you were a Boy Scout, or you've got a Boy Scout in your house, and so you think of be prepared as a motto for a Scout. But for others of you, you might connect being prepared in a different context. If you're a student, you might think of being prepared as being ready for that test so that when you sit down, you can regurgitate that knowledge and get an A or a B or whatever your target is for that exam. For others of you, you might be a homeowner and you think of being prepared as buying the paint and the supplies and taping off the edges before you go to repaint the guest room. Still, for others of you, you might be expecting your first child or expecting your next child. We've had the joy as a church family to see several children born, and being prepared for that day might look like picking out a name, having a party to celebrate, picking some colors for the nursery, or possibly buying a car seat or borrowing one from a friend so that you're prepared for the day that that child comes. But as we think about being prepared, it is being ready beforehand now we 're used to getting ready beforehand for events that are already on our calendar. As a matter of fact, when I looked at my calendar, I saw that there was a Sunday at the beginning of the week, and knowing that today was coming, I had to get prepared for this moment earlier this week we 're used to making preparations for things that are on our calendars, but often and to our challenge and difficulty, we don't prepare for things that are no less certain but are uncertain on when they will come. Think about the, the person, and maybe this describes you, who waits to adjust your diet until you find out your blood pressure is too high, or who wait to begin the exercise program until your weight is below the, above the Mendoza line, whatever that is for you. See, sometimes we don't prepare for inevitable realities. We procrastinate when we don't have a fixed date on when that challenge will come. Well, friends, when we think about Matthew chapter 25, what Jesus does is he lets us know in no uncertain terms that he is coming back to the earth one day. And he wants us to be prepared for that moment, even though we don't know when that moment will be. And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable, a sermon illustration, to help illustrate how you and I might be inspired to respond to the news that he is coming, how we might prepare today for the fact that he is coming back tomorrow. We're going to look today at this parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 25 verses 1 through 13, and as we read those verses, we'll understand hopefully this parable a little better, and we'll use it to formulate three diagnostic questions that will help you and I know how we might prepare for the reality of his coming. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 25, and we'll begin in verse 1. I want to read for us this message that Jesus is teaching. This is what he says. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, "'Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out.' But the wise answered, saying, "'Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves.' And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut." Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now, friends, in those 13 verses in this parable that Jesus tells, we're going to see three diagnostic questions that will help us know how we might prepare for the second coming of Jesus. But before we look at those diagnostic questions, it's helpful for us to to understand this parable a little more, the parable of the ten virgins. Now, I mentioned earlier that parables were sermon illustrations. They were stories that Jesus told to help connect his audience with something that they needed to know. In other words, Jesus would take a story from a setting that his disciples or his audience knew about in order to tell them or teach them something that they needed to know about God or the kingdom of heaven. And so in this instance, Jesus takes a story about a wedding and weddings were something that they knew about. And he uses that story to help teach them something that they need to know about the kingdom of heaven, the return of Jesus, and how we need to prepare to respond. Now, when we begin thinking about this, uh, we can't just think about it in terms of weddings as we know them. Because when Jesus told this parable, he told it into the context of the first century So for us to understand it appropriately, we don't just need to think about weddings as we've experienced them, but we need to know about weddings as the first century would have experienced them. And so weddings in the first century were a little different than weddings that we have today in the sense that when an engagement happened between a potential bride and groom, they would be sequestered to different homes for a period of time known as the betrothal. You might remember that word from the era of time uh, before Jesus was born with Mary and Joseph. But during this betrothal, they would spend time apart to, to validate the chastity of the bride-to-be. And after that period of betrothal was done, the groom would proceed to the home of the bride in order to, to to meet up with her. And the wedding would take place in the home of the bride. Now, for those of you who are fathers who have recently hosted a wedding for your daughter who was a bride, know that there was a much cheaper and biblical option for the wedding. Just to have it right there at your house. Um, I'm kidding about that. but But There was, they they would go. That's what they did in the first century. They would go to the home of the bride and that is where the wedding would happen. But after the bride and the groom would would exchange vows and become husband and wife, then later in that day, they would move from the home of the bride to the home of the groom. And they would move from those two, from where the, the bride's house to the groom's house in a procession. And their friends would meet them on that procession and join them in a parade back to the groom's house where a party would begin that would go on for several days. Now, it's in this context that Jesus tells this story. And the story picks up where you have what are called here ten virgins or ten bridesmaids who... Are gathered along the roadside, waiting for the bride and the groom to leave the bride's house and head to the groom's house so that they can go there and party and celebrate with them. And knowing that that procession often would take place after dark, they grab what is called here, translated here in the English Standard Version, a lamp, but maybe would be better translated a torch. Those bridesmaids show up with a torch in hand so that they can light that path at night when the bride and the groom come by. Now, knowing that they're going to light this torch, the wise bridesmaids think to bring along a Ziploc bag full of oil to dip their rag in that oil and wrap it around their stick so that it will have fuel to light and stay lit when the bride and the groom pass by. But there were some foolish bridesmaids who show up with the stick and the cloth but no oil so that their cloth might flicker for a moment but quickly go out and that bridesmaid was not prepared with an appropriate light to celebrate the coming of the bride and the groom when they came. Well, the bridesmaids go out and it says that the, the bride and the groom are delayed In other words, the initial party at the bride's house went a little longer than they thought. Now, for us, that seems really rude and challenging because we're a very punctual culture. You've been invited to a wedding. It says 2 o'clock. By golly, you want it to start at 2 o'clock. But it was not so in their day. In their day, the bride bride and the groom would get married at the bride's house, and when that party ended, they would head to the groom's house, and the the people who were going to join them in that festivity would just wait along the roadside until they came, ready to go so that when they passed by, they could go and join them at the groom's house for the party. Well, the bride and the groom are delayed, but when they show up, only half of the bridesmaids are able to light their torches. The other half unable to light them because they have no oil. They scramble about, they ask to borrow some oil, but no oil is available for them to have, so they need to go into the city and try to buy some. And when they go into the city to buy some oil, the procession moves on to the groom's house and they miss their opportunity to join the party and they're ultimately kept out of the celebration for all the days of that feast, much to their chagrin. And so Jesus tells this story of the ten virgins, or the ten bridesmaids. Five who were foolish and five who were wise. Now, why did Jesus tell this story? Well, Jesus told this story to make a point. Again, these are sermon illustrations. And sometimes we are tempted to try to make the parables, as Bible commentators would say, walk on all fours. In other words, we want to make every little detail in the parable mean something Uh, very specific. But in reality, most parables were not told to make 10 points. They were told to make one point. And in this instance, Jesus tells a parable to make a point, and he's very explicit about what that point is. He tells us why he told the story. And he tells us in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 13. He says, I told you the story so that you would watch, therefore because you do not know the day or the hour. In other words, because you don't know when I'm coming back to this earth, be prepared so that you will have your torch lit and not be searching for oil at the time that I come back. That's the point that Jesus makes. Now, he makes this point inside of a larger message that has been talking about this last seven years before his return, known as the Great Tribulation. And if you've been with us the last three weeks, we've been talking about how there will be a period of time upon the earth, a period of seven years of of judgment that God will pour out upon the earth that will precede the return of Jesus. And I think that Jesus tells this story inside of this context, letting us know that specifically he might be talking to those who are living during that seven-year period, inviting them not to wait till the very end of that seven years to trust him. But by application, the point that he's making applies just as much to you and I as it does to those who might be living in that last seven years. I mean, let's think about it. There will come a time where each of us will stand before God. The amount of time between now and then is unknown to us. We don't know if we'll live another 10 minutes, another 10 years, another 50 years, or if Jesus will come back tomorrow. But whatever it is, at an unexpected time to us, at a time unknown to us, we will stand before God himself and have to give an account for our lives. That's why Charles Spurgeon says... Of this passage, he says to those of us who will not be alive at the second advent of Christ, the midnight cry, "Go ye out to meet Him," will sound forth at the hour of death. In other words, there will come a point where you and I will all have to stand before God, whether it's through death or through the return of Christ or through the rapture, as we talked about last Sunday. We there will be a a moment where we will stand before Him. And in light of the reality of that moment, how do you and I prepare? Well, friends, Jesus tells this story. And inside of it, I think there are three diagnostic questions that let you and I know how we might prepare for the sun to rise again. So let's look at those questions. The first question that I think we can ask is this. Are you a foolish professor... Or are you a wise possessor? Now, this is a real question that I want you to ask yourself. Are you a foolish professor or are you a wise possessor? Now, here's the thing. Are Do we have any university professors here today? If you are, just kind of wave at me. I just want you to know I'm not talking to you, okay? And this is not a, a, uh, a slam on academia, on the University of Oklahoma, or UCO, or any place. I'm not going after a university professor when I say this. But what I am saying is that Jesus creates a category inside of this parable for someone who is professing to be one thing, but actually possessing nothing. Somebody who says that they are a follower of Christ, but in fact, they are not. Jesus creates that category inside of this parable by talking about 10 bridesmaids, five that are wise and five that are foolish. And when we look at those ten bridesmaids, one of the things that's interesting is that they actually share a lot of things in common. What do they share in common? Well, let's let's take a look. One of the things that they share in common is a connection to the bride and groom. These are not just random members of the city. They're not professional friends. These are people who actually had some connection to the bride and groom. So, that is something that they share in common. It's also noteworthy that they all have torches. They all showed up with a lamp. They had the equipment. A third thing that we might see that they all had in common is that they all showed up. These were not people who stayed home. These were people that RSVP'd, yes, and actually went out to the roadside. Not only that, but these were all people that had a desire to go to the party. They had a desire to be with the bride and groom and to celebrate with them on that day. And lastly, we might notice that they all had a similar look, and we know that because they were bridesmaids. They would have all had matching dresses on. Now that's our culture. I don't know what they were wearing. But the point is, when you see this description, they lump they're all lumped together, aren't they? There were, there were ten of them. They all had a torch. They all showed up. They all were young women who were ready to go to this party. And yet Jesus said there's a distinction between five wise and five foolish. And what was that distinction? Well, that distinction was that the wise had prepared They had not just come with a a rag and a stick, but they'd come with a rag and a stick and a Ziploc bag full of oil so they could douse that rag so that it would burn appropriately when the bride and the groom came by. They had made a preparation. Now, friends, I want to make a connection now to our lives. Some of you, even as I was talking about this, are anticipating what I'm getting ready to say. But when we think about the difference between foolish professors and wise possessors of genuine faith today, there are a number of things that those two categories of people actually both have. There are some similarities that they have as well. Both the wise and the foolish may call themselves Christians. They may Stand up and say, yes, I am, am a Christian. If they were given a, a a piece of paper to fill out for the next census in the United States and it asks what religion they are, they would fill in the little bubble to say that they are a Christian. Not only that, but they have some equipment. They have a torch. They have a Bible. They might even have several Bibles. Not only do they have a torch, they have a Bible, but also they... They showed up, they go to church, they're in rooms like this all over the world on mornings like this. Not only that, but they have a desire to go to heaven. If you were to ask them, do you want to spend an eternity in heaven or do you want to spend an eternity in hell? My guess is their answer is going to be, I have a desire to spend an eternity in heaven. Now here's the thing. I'm not saying that everybody who calls themselves a Christian, owns a Bible, goes to church and desires to go to heaven is a foolish professor. But I am saying that some who have those things connected to them are. You can look around a room and the wise and the foolish can look quite similar. So how do we know if we're really prepared for his coming, how do we know that we've got oil for our lamp? Well, friends, the, the, the answer to that, of course, is are we a true po- pro- possessor of faith? Are we actually trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins? Do we acknowledge that he is the Son of God? If so, then, then we have a different connection than someone that merely marks a form on a census or owns a piece of equipment or has certain things on their calendar. There's something different about those who are trusting in Christ. The Bible says that those who trust in Christ actually have a transformation. The old is gone, the new has come, they're a new creation. Their sins are forgiven, their hope for eternity is secure. But it's found not in what they own. It's found not in where they go. It's found in who they're trusting. If you want to be a wise possessor, place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's where the hope for our eternity is found. Are you a foolish professor? Or are you a wise possessor? And I, I say that not to mock anyone in this room, but as Jesus does in the story, to call all of us to possess the faith that He says is possible, that leads to salvation. Second diagnostic question that I think we need to ask, though, is this: Are you filing jointly, or are you filing personally? Are you filing jointly or are you filing personally? Now, when I say that, you're going to notice that I'm getting ready to use a parable of my own. It's a parable within a parable. Okay, deal with it, all right? But, but here's the thing. When I use that language, what does it make you think of? Filing taxes, right? Now, when I was a small child, I did not file taxes. I merely was connected to my parents, My parents filed taxes and I lived as a dependent under their banner. But one of the things that's happened as I've gotten older is that I've gotten my own job and I I make some money and and as a result of all those things, I have to file my own taxes. I have to file them personally. Now, I, I tell you that story because I think that a similar phenomena happens inside of this this parable, I think that in this parable, Jesus talks about the five foolish bridesmaids as people who thought that they could live off of the oil of their friends. The five foolish bridesmaids thought that they could just file as a dependent on the preparation of their friend. But what they found was when the bride and groom show up, if they had not made personal filings to get what they needed, that they would be excluded from the party. And I think a similar phenomenon, friends, is tempting for us today. I think that that many people, and I've had conversations with many that that have fixed their hope for all eternity to another person. In other words, you begin talking about their relationship with, with God and, and their hope of their sins being forgiven and their hope to spend an eternity in heaven. And they begin to talk about, well, I am the son or daughter of so-and-so. And they were a deacon or a pastor or a missionary or church folk. And so because of their connection, I'm kind of covered. They have enough faith. They have enough oil for me. Or for others, it, it might not be their, their family, it might be that the, the, they came from, but it might be their family they're in right now. I've, I've talked to husbands and, and wives who have said, well, I'm I'm okay because my spouse believes. And so, fixing their hope upon the faith of their spouse, hoping that they have enough oil to cover both, or it might be a parent to a child, or children to your parents, or it might be The connection that you have inside of a church. You think, well, I I go to that church. Surely there's enough oil in that church to cover me as well just by showing up and participating on Sundays. We think that we can file jointly as a dependent upon someone else. But the reality is, if we choose to try to file our eternity connected to another human being, the challenge is we have to itemize. And when we itemize, we have to itemize all of the sins in our lives, and we find that the bill is very large, and it requires of us our very lives. But if we trust in Christ, if we are that wise possessor of genuine faith, and and we are connected to him, and we are trusting in him, and we are dependent upon him, then we no longer have to itemize, but we get to file the easy form with the standard deduction that covers all of the penalty for our sins. Friends, Jesus tells this parable in part to let us know that we cannot skate our way into eternity on the faith of our spouse or our parents or our friends or our kids. But we need to personally respond in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are here today, have you, have you done that? Have you personally responded to faith in Christ? Believing that Jesus' death on the cross paid the penalty that your sins deserve? And that your only hope for eternity is through him? If you are waiting to make that and, and hoping that someone else's faith will cover you, Jesus tells us this story in a loving way to say, don't bank on it. Don't be a foolish professor. Don't try to file jointly with your family. But personally, trust in me. That's what Jesus says. The third diagnostic question that he asks, though, I think is also important for us to see. He says, are you ready, to, are you ready for tomorrow... Today? Are you ready for tomorrow today? Now, we see that in the story when the delay of the groom coming exposes the fact that several aren't ready. So they are not prepared when he comes. And when he comes, they move into the house, and then the door is shut, and the time is too late. This story, friends, is a reminder for us that there will be a time when it is too late for us to respond. Sometimes we want to put off getting serious about our relationship with God until a future time when we understand everything, when all of our questions are answered, then I'll believe, well, there, there may be a time when it's too late. We may want to put it off until we're out of high school or out of college because we think that there's something else we're going to enjoy more in the meantime. And Jesus says, don't put it off because it might be too late. And it might be too late because Jesus comes back. And when he does, it'll happen like a thief in the night as we saw last Sunday. And we might miss it. Or it may happen that he comes back and we stand, or that we, our life ends sooner than we thought, and we stand before him because we died earlier than we thought. Again, Spurgeon's quote here is helpful. To those of us who will not be alive at Christ's second advent, the midnight cry, go ye out to meet him, will sound forth at the hour of death. Friends, this is last week, officiated, uh, was a part of some funeral services. Those that died did not forecast their death. They didn't say, Hey, I'm going to die on a Tuesday, so I'm going to believe on a Monday. They didn't have that kind of foreknowledge. Thankfully, in those situations, the individuals had placed their faith in Christ while they still had time, but the reminder is still there for us. There will be a time when it is too late. So, for putting it off, why? Jesus tells us this story that we might not delay, that we might not wait, but that we would believe in him now. Friends, I can honestly say, as somebody now, I, I realize when I, when I start talking this way, some of you are going, oh, nice, Sonny, you're you know young man. And for others of you, you're looking at me, I sound really old when I'm getting ready to say this. But I can tell you, as a 46-year-old guy, I'll just come right on the table, right? As a 46-and-a-half-year-old guy, I've yet to meet a wise person Yet to meet a wise person whose advice to me was, I wish I'd have waited to believe in Jesus till later in life. Never met that person. As a 46 and a half year old guy, I've never met the person that said, you know, I wish I I would have waited until later to get serious about my relationship with God and following him because I sure had a lot of fun in my late teens and twenties. Yet to meet that person. Why? Because God knows what he's talking about. It's out of his love that he comes to us and points the way for us, invites us to follow him in this life for our protection and provision, but also invites us to follow him into eternity where he will protect and provide for us forever. There's a party, friends, one day that we none of us want to miss. Let's not have the door closed because we waited to respond until it was too late. Father God, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to worship today. We thank you for the the word that you have given to us in Matthew 25 that tells in this beautiful story about our need to respond and our need to not wait until it is too late. Father, I pray that every heart, every soul in this room would hear in that your love and would respond in faith, trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and for their hope for all time. Father, even now as they they sit there, Father, that they would come before you, trust in you, come to the altar and find the provision of life in Jesus, that we would all be wise possessors of faith on that day. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.